Good morning. It's my great honor to share with you all an especially powerful and meaningful text. And um, I'm personally very excited to share this with you. But I will say at the outset that this text is rich. And we are going to mine its riches today. So I want to begin with a bit of an obvious statement and one that is fairly convicting. Uh, but we're, we're in for the ride, right? You with me? Yes. All right, here we go. Selfishness combats the Christian life. Selfishness combats the Christian life. Now, I want to begin with a story and say that several years ago, while teaching through this passage, Philippians chapter 2, for Christmas, uh, a passage that's very familiar to many of us, one that is, I mean, honestly, every time you read it, aren't you just moved by its richness? Well, when I was teaching through this several years ago, I admit uh, that my wife and I were having a particularly sharp disagreement. And those things happen uh, in relationships. And yet, in a moment, I had this realization, and it shocked me. And that realization was that I did not understand how to move forward. That there was a disagreement that we were having, and it brought me to a crossroads. And I didn't know how to move forward from there. And even furthermore, even if I did know how to move forward... I wasn't sure if I wanted to move forward. And it was in that moment, at that crossroads, I realized that I had a choice. That selfishness was combating against my life in Christ at that very moment. And in a split second, it was almost instinctual, guttural, I responded And would my response be selfishness or selflessness? Now, I admit that I began with an obvious statement. However, no issue is so difficult to answer as that to which the answer is obvious. I think that is exactly the point. It is because we know that selfishness combats the Christian life, that knowing it, we can wiggle out from the weight of what's required of us as we follow Christ. And so it is my duty to restate the obvious. Selfishness combats the Christian life. Now, I think it's important as we move forward to acknowledge why that is the case. Why selfishness combats the Christian life. Because, you know, Christianity isn't the only religion who preaches against selfishness. We know that, right? There are many religions who practice selflessness. However, it combats the Christian life specifically because our God... Jesus practiced the most radical selflessness, a way of life 
so different, we actually call it new life. And he invites us to live into that life. And that life comes into us and reorients us and changes us. So we begin our message today in Philippi. And around Christmas time, as it is here this week, we often look for joy-filled messages, right? I think it says joy right there on the pulpit, right? Messages of Mary. And I do too. You know, I, this message might sound like, you know, oh man, this guy's intense. Like, is he happy? Uh, I am very happy. I do. I love pursuing the traditions and the joy-filled elements of this season. But today, what I want to do is examine the threats to joy. That there are things that threaten joy. Read with me in verses 2 through 4. Paul says there, make my joy complete. How? By being of the same mind. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests or your own personal opinions or your own personal preferences, but also for the interests of others. See, there's selfishness in the Philippian church. And you'd think that trust, unity, joy, those things would come naturally in the church, right? Like, this is the place where trust, unity, and joy are cultivated. They spring forth from a life of following Christ. Or you think that a family, there would be trust, unity, and joy or a company with a shared vision or in a neighborhood with a shared view of the common good or in countries with shared values. You think that from there, the joy would be natural. I mean, you would think that people with a common future were going to the same place. You'd think that those with a common future would, you know, support each other. Hope in and believe the best about each other. Represent each other fairly when speaking about them. But Paul says in Philippi, people thought more of themselves, more of their preferences, more of their opinions. And Paul begs, isn't there some common connection to combat This selfishness, which is combating the Christian life. And thus begins probably one of the most famous passages in all of the New Testament. Yes, there is a common connection. And Paul knows this. This is what he refers to by this word mind. In verse 2, he says that we have the same mind. 
And what this reflects is a particular inner attitude. It's that decision-making process that every Christian now has reoriented around Christ. And Paul says, I've experienced this. My whole life has been reoriented around Christ. I mean, think of it. Paul violently persecuted the church, but now he loves the church. And not only that, he no longer is violent. I mean, think of this too. Paul imprisoned Christians. And we know from Acts that during Paul's time in Philippi, he was imprisoned for being a Christian. And not only that, he sang in prison too, joyfully rejoicing. In fact, he frequently talks about the joy of his chains, which at this point of this letter is when he's imprisoned in Rome. Paul says, I rejoice in these chains because it's in Christ. What happened to Paul? Well, Jesus' coming completely reoriented Paul's life. Everything changed. Now, haven't all Christians experienced this same love that Paul talks about here in verse 2 and 3? Haven't we all experienced God's reorienting love? Haven't we all experienced the change of mind, the change of emotions, the change of will, what Paul calls the humility of mind in verse 3? Haven't all Christians had their lives completely turned upside down and reoriented around Christ's coming? Yes, they have. And that's a mark of being a Christian. However, we still live in a world of brokenness. And we're, we're prone to what Paul calls in verse 14, grumbling and disputing. Look there, Paul, after he builds this amazing theological foundation, he says in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. These are selfish actions and attitudes. Grumbling are these outward actions like selfish complaining, unbalanced criticism of small matters, impatience towards what is not understood, or grudging unwillingness to be helpful. Paul says, don't do that. He says also, Don't dispute, and disputing is the inward, the activity of mind and heart that leads to the grumbling. It's that guttural, instinctual, in a moment, thought to act in your own interest. How do you change that? You can't, at least according to your own human effort, but Christ coming as a man completely reorients every person's life so that even your decision-making processes in a moment, those moments are changed. You don't think about yourself anymore. No, you think about others. And this is where we begin. And that is with reality. The reality is that this world is broken. 
Like I could talk about joy all the time, but there is a point where I just ha- you just have to be honest. Like something's off in this world. It's broken. That's a reality. If we can't talk about it in the church, I mean, where else are we going to talk about that? If we can't talk about how hurt, how broken, how much suffering, how this last week of, you know, holiday cheer was actually the most depressing week for some of us, like, we have to be open to talk about the brokenness that is happening in this world. Paul admits it. He confronts it full on. There's brokenness in the church in Philippi. We all have a personal example to reference when I talk about the brokenness of this world. Something rushes to the front of our mind. Perhaps it was a discussion on the way to church where you just know as soon as you leave this building, you have to revisit that thing. And you're doing everything in your power in this moment to not let that thing affect you. And I'm saying, let it affect you because it's real. The church isn't the place where we escape our problems. The church is the place where we find the person who died for them and raised us up so that we can live into his future. The reality is the world is broken, but second, Jesus has come. And Jesus is coming. Jesus came many years ago as a child, as we sang, and Jesus is coming again to bring all things, all glory about. I absolutely encourage people to feel the Mary, so to speak, this time of year, right? That's Starbucks tagline. Feel the Mary, you know, buy my product. Feel the Mary this time of year, I I, I agree. However, doing so requires that we plunge into the depth of Jesus is coming. All right? That's, this is our first point. We got to plunge into the depth now of Jesus is coming. This is where Paul takes us, right? We're just following the text. And let me set it up. Paul not only asks Christians to be unselfish because it's better, because it's morally better, because there's an ethical imperative or because there's some long-term benefit. No, he says, don't just be unselfish because it's better. He says, look at Christ. And this is what he tells us in verse five. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Look at at Christ. Now, this word attitude in many of your translations, it's translated mind. Paul has been using this word. He uses it in verse two and in verse three. He uses it actually throughout this book. It's an interesting way he weaves it in and out. This word mind again describes a person's decision-making process. And so Paul concludes, Christians are to make decisions just as Jesus made decisions. That's a command. That's how he begins it. Look again, verse five, have this attitude. That's a command. Have this attitude. Make decisions just as Jesus made decisions. But he goes further. Look at Jesus. He's God. Verse six who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
So when Paul says that Jesus existed in the form of God, he is saying that Jesus is really and truly God. In his own essential nature, Jesus is God. Now, Paul could have said, he could have said, although Jesus was God, using the to be verb, but Paul uses a more emphatic word than the to be verb. Let me illustrate this, you know, somewhat humorously. You guys know what a duck test is? You guys heard of the duck test, right? If it looks like a duck, swims like a duck, quacks like a duck, then it's a duck, right? We've all heard this. It's the duck test. Paul uses a word essentially that says Jesus was God and showed himself to be God. And specifically, Jesus' decisions of one, not grasping at the end of verse 6, and two, emptying in verse 7, reflect God. They reflect that he is God, and they reflect what God looks like, how he acts. And further, they reflect selfless decision-making processes we are to imitate. They reflect things that we are to imitate. So you guys ready for this? We're going to nerd out here for just about 15 minutes, and so you're going to have to follow along pretty close. But here we go. So first, Jesus' decision of not regarding equality with God a thing to be grasped. So this verb grasped is what we're going to plunge into. And it's a rare verb in the New Testament. You know what that means. When something's rare, there's a discussion. What does it mean? How should it be translated? And really, there are three options that we have here. And so I'm going to go through them one by one. And I'm going to illustrate them uh, by looking at the different Bible translations, English Bible translations to show. All right. So number one, this word grasp could be translated as a treasure to hold on to at all costs, a treasure to hold on to at all costs. And this is positive, right? This is a treasure, something that uh, you're due, right? And you can see this in both the ESV and the New Living Translation, if you read either of those. First, the English Standard Version, the ESV says, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to. New Living Translation, Jesus did not think of equality with God as something to cling to, right? So Jesus is due this glory as God. He, he deserves it. It's his. However, instead of holding on to it, because it's his, he's due it, instead of holding on to it, he voluntarily gave up what was due to him. And that is this glory. Now, we don't understand this. We are not God. But we do understand things that are due to us. And we do understand that tug when we have to give those things up. But Jesus does so to the extreme. And this is what he did when he became a human. Now, the second way that we could translate it is a position which could be exploited for self-advantage. And this is a negative verb, right? And I'll be honest, in my survey of the way that this verb and its families are used, it's 
usually used negatively, right? It's not a good thing. And so here we see this illustrated with in the NIV, where it says Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Or the New Revised Standard says Jesus did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. Right? So this negative use of the verb, if we pursued this, it would provoke a couple questions. And the first one would be, did Jesus live for self-advantage? Depending on your answer, you'd have to explain yourself. So Paul is saying, no, Jesus did not live for self-advantage. And how so? How could we explain it? Well, let me explain it by explaining the temptation. Right? We know this passage, Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness after fasting for 40 days. Jesus did not exercise his power for self-advantage when he was told to turn the rocks to bread. Okay, do we understand? Jesus had the power to turn rocks to bread. He multiplied bread. He could do it. He has the power to do so. I mean, Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. He's hungry. He had every reasonable human sort of instinct to make bread from rocks. But Jesus never used his power for his own self-advantage. Also, Jesus did not display his power for self-glorification. Remember the uh, next temptation? Satan says, throw yourself down and the angels will pick you up misunderstanding, misinterpreting Psalm 91. Well, it's true. The angels would have held him up. It's true, absolutely. And Jesus is due the honor and respect from the angelic beings because he is God. If he had thrown himself down, he would certainly have been lifted up. But Jesus never displayed his power so that he could simply glorify himself. He had all power. I mean, he could have flexed and everyone would have fallen down. Like Jesus could have displayed his power for his own self-advantage, but he didn't. And also, Jesus did not gain power other than the, by God the Father's guidance. The final temptation, remember, Satan says, bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all of these kingdoms. Jesus is owed worship from all of the kingdoms, rule over all of the kingdoms, but there's a certain timing. There's a certain direction, a certain process that God the Father is taking with him. He had an opportunity to get what he deserved by taking a shortcut, but he never gained what was his other than by limiting himself to the Father's plan. I mean, that's Incredible stuff. Jesus never used his position for self-advantage. The last way that we could translate this word grasp is, we're familiar with it. We're, oh, we read the New King James usually here. So it's the way we could translate it is an, an item to be taken as a robber grasps after loot. Right? So stealing would be the understanding here. Now, the King James and the New King James uh, take this usually negative verb and they sort of make it positive, right? We're familiar verse. Uh, let me read it in the New King James. Jesus did not consider it robbery 
to be equal with God. Is that, you know, you guys ever wonder what about this word robbery? That's such a funky way to, you know, say that. I don't know what you're saying, Paul. Well, it's, they're doing their best to try to translate this really rare verb. And again, if we take this way of translation, we're going to ask questions. And this time we could do so within the Trinity and ask, did the son seek to take the glory due to God? Did the son try to take the glory that was due to God at an improper time? And again, let me illustrate by retelling the beginning of all things. The first man, Adam, Adam, the first man attempted to steal from God for he sought to be like God. Genesis 3, 5 says, but in grasping after what was not his, nor was it the right time for him to be given it, he died. Jesus refused to grasp and he obeyed. And what does it say of him? He gave life to all humanity. So let me recap. Grasping. It could either mean desperately holding on to something that's ours. Don't, this is mine. Don't touch it. It's mine. Jesus did not do that. It could mean using position for self-advantage. Jesus never did that either. Or it could mean taking what was yours at the wrong time. No, Jesus didn't do that. I mean, all of these things are it's so incredibly convicting to me. And we're not even halfway done with the message yet. Serious. When I talk about the reorienting work of Christ in his coming as a human, it completely turns everything upside down. So let's go on to the next thing. Second, Jesus' decision to empty himself shows his selfless divinity. Look at verse 7. Paul says there, Jesus emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, right? So being emptied, this verb, theologically known as kenosis, speaks of Jesus voluntarily emptying himself into a servant. This is the language Paul uses. He emptied himself into a servant. Jesus did not empty out his divinity. No, Jesus took the form form of a bondservant, emptying himself of that which is naturally and expectedly brought him glory. Paul says, using this phrase, taking the form, he's repeating the same language of verse six. You can look back and you can see that there. And what is he saying? He's saying here that Jesus is really and truly a servant. In his own essential nature, he is a servant. Again, using a verb more emphatic than the to be verb. Jesus is truly and really a servant. Now, Israel knew that God had suffered. You can read the Old Testament prophets and you can see that there. But Jesus here, it tells us suffered as a man. In solidarity with humanity. This new and unimaginable state that God entered into was that of a human in all ways. We just sang about it. Emmanuel, a manger for a bed. 
no crown upon his head. Neither a servant nor a human receives glory due to God. And they are in no position to seek glory, but step aside for the one to whom it's due. They emptied himself. Jesus emptied himself. And so both the not grasping and the emptying, these are both important because one, they reflect the divine. They reflect that Jesus is God and they reflect what God looks like, how God acts. And second, they reflect the selfless decision-making processes we, you and I, are to imitate. We are called not to grasp after and we are called to empty ourselves into just as Jesus did. So let's apply this. In our broken world, a Christian does not desperately hold on to the treasures that they are due. I mean, think of that. The things that are yours. We're not to desperately cling to those things. A Christian does not utilize his or her advantageous position for self-advantage. A Christian embraces the limits God has placed on his or her life and stops, rests, limits, and waits as God leads. A Christian connects with those who suffer. He convicted much, right? I mean, goodness. For me, when I was teaching this passage at that moment, like I was saying, in that argument, my wife, it was more like ruined. Paul makes it clear that the governing virtue of all of life, of a Christian's life, is Jesus's selflessness. So a question you could take away. One that we've heard before. It's worth repeating. Is blank action selfless? Does blank action produce selflessness? It's a good gauge. Something that we can learn to practice. And I want to pause in this moment and ask Are you today struggling moving forward? Are there things in your life you're not able to move forward on? Maybe as a spouse. I was talking with someone after the first service, uh, and he was reading his Bible in Spanish. And he told me that in the Spanish translation, it used uh, this word, and I'm, forgive me, my pronunciation is not perfect, is aferarse. And it's used for uh, welding metal together. And so this word grasping, according to the Spanish translation, is breaking apart two welded pieces of iron. So when I ask, are you struggling (laughs) moving forward? I'm recognizing it's hard. To break apart welded metal? Are you struggling as a spouse? Maybe as a parent? There are many struggles, ups and downs. Maybe it's within your work environment. You don't know how to move forward. 
and you're at that crossroads, will you be selfless or selfish? You want to follow Christ and you don't know how to move forward? Maybe it's with a neighbor within your community. You want so badly to bring about God's glory in your neighborhood. You have these views of the shared common good, but you don't know how to move forward. A lot of us, I bet, are at a crossroads. There are many crossroads that I've experienced in my life. And at every one of those crossroads, I don't know how I'm going to move forward, but guess what? The Lord has moved me forward. But it is not without fear and trepidation. Guys, gals, we have not even got to the scary part yet. Are you ready for this? Because this is the scary good part. One question that this provokes is, will God ask me to go further than I am comfortable? And I heard everyone mumble under their breaths, yes, oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> How far will God ask me to go? And you know, I, I, I cannot speak from the stage specifically into every person's area of life and so I do not, this is my, I guess my little disclaimer, uh, do not hear what I'm about to say as, you know, do something that's unwise or self-destructive. I think using, you know, the example that's laid out for us in scripture, the moving of the Holy Spirit within a person through his word and in the community of saints should always be our guide. But Paul's answer to will God ask me to go further than I am comfortable is a resounding Yes. Now, I admit, I've been honest with you all, and I'll continue to be so as long as I work here. I fear obeying God will bring an end to me. I do, I, I fear that. Whether, you know, metaphorically or literally, I fear that God will bring an end to me. And so, for example, in the argument with my wife, that I referred to in the beginning, the realization of not knowing how to move forward, right? That crossroads, that realization, and the feeling of not wanting to, even if I did know how to move forward, were built upon a fear. And the fear was this, that I would come to an end if I stepped into the abyss. That that divine crossroads that I was at and I didn't know how to move forward, if I stepped out, into that abyss, that I would come to an end of myself. That was, a, that was what that guttural, instinctual selfishness was feeding off of. I was afraid of reaching out and asking for help. I'd never been here before as a husband. I didn't know what to say. I legitimately couldn't say anything. Admitting need or even confronting that I need to change, I was afraid that I would come to an end. Here we go. Verse eight, Jesus being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Jesus was selfless and selflessly obedient to death, literally the end of a person. You understand? Death is literally the end of somebody. But Jesus followed God until he came to his end. And not just that. Look at what it continues. Even death on a cross. Yes, Jesus came to an end of himself, but Jesus was selflessly obedient to a criminal's cross. So at the end of himself, when the fear in the back of your mind is actually being proven true, have you ever had that experience? Where you're like, my worst fears are happening. It's coming true. Everything that I worried about is happening. Well, that is happening to Jesus, and then in that moment, there's not rescue. It's humiliation. It's people pointing at him naked on a cross saying, he could save others. Why can't he save himself? Ha, ha, ha. This guy's a joke. Could you imagine that if everything that you believed was coming untrue, and then in that moment, people were just mocking you? That's what was happening to Jesus. Are we unmoved by the dismay of the crucifixion? I mean, everywhere you look in antiquity, it always evokes horror. You can't turn away. Your, your, your mind just, you want to, but it's just so horrific. I'm saying that like the brokenness in this world, we must allow it to be so, much like the three spirits in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol who reoriented Scrooge's entire view of wealth. Guys, there's not going to be three spirits who show up in your bed at any point in your future. The only way to reorient your life in any meaningful way is to allow Jesus Christ and his coming to completely turn your life upside down. That's the only way. But we must look at it. Now, I do want to say, as I've, this is a message about joy. It doesn't sound like it per se. As is with the story of Scrooge, like what happened when his view of wealth was completely reoriented? He rejoiced. He gave away all his wealth. I only get serious about the obvious in order to lead us to this next truth. It's true. Death is very literally the end of a person, but it is not the end of God. Your end and God's end are not the same. It's true. The cross was humiliating, but that was God's path to glory. The world, sort of capital W, whatever that is, its path to glory is not the same. It's God's path to glory. Look what verse 9 through 11 says. For this reason, because Jesus came to the end of himself, because he was even humiliated, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, 
quoting the lyrics of Isaiah 45, of those who are in heaven and on earth and even under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Guys, this is not admiration like a fallen heroic soldier, as beautiful as that is. These are things that Jesus was due. Jesus was due glory. He was due honor. He was due worship. How did he get what he was made for? How did he get what was rightfully his? He did so by dying, by coming to the end of himself. By even allowing humiliating circumstances to overtake him. And guess what happened? Jesus was raised up in victory. You see, death, the cross, even obedience, they seem like signs of weakness. But Paul, in quoting Isaiah 45 here about the creator of heaven, there's no question about it being an all-powerful creator of heaven in Isaiah 45. By doing so, quoting that here, Paul proves that death, the cross, even obedience are not weakness. They are power. And that's the example that we follow. And so let's apply this one last time. <clears throat> there is no need to ever continue in selfishness. There is no need to continue in selfishness. Now, we are all selfish at some point. We all want our way at our time for our benefit at some point. But that isn't the message of our Lord Jesus Christ. The message of Jesus is a message of a person who received all glory from God by laying down all glory due to him. We are made for glory. Humanity was made for glory, but sin short-circuited that destiny. But we can again move into the glory, the joy, the plans that God has for us. But now we do so by participating in the glory given first to another. And that person shares it with us, and he is our Lord Jesus Christ. It's by faith that we participate in his inglorious death, whereby he dealt with sin's inglorious destiny. And by faith, we are resurrected just as he was in glory. And here's my point. Jesus neither accomplished his glory through selfishness nor our glory through selfishness, and neither do we accomplish any glory through selfishness. There is no need to continue in selfishness. It doesn't lead to our good. This radical selflessness is God's path for glory because it is our, the path of our Savior. Now, selfishness constantly combats the Christian life, like I said. But as I find, found out in that argument with my wife those many years ago now, and I should say humorously that I don't even remember what we were arguing about. <laughs> I made such a big deal about this thing and I genuinely have no idea. It was such a pivotal moment in my life. But it was about nothing. What I found there, as I have found many times since at those crossroads, is that I need not fear coming to an end of myself. I need not utilize selfishness in any way, though I struggle with it. I know that God will always raise me up, even if I give of myself, even if I limit myself, even if I quiet myself, God will raise me up. Why? Because Jesus Christ is my Lord. 
So if you're at a place today where you need to move forward, you're at a crossroads, the best thing is to be prayed for, to come forward and to receive prayer from the prayer team or the pastors who will be here down front after the service or something that I'd like to institute. I'm eight weeks into this church. My friends from Seattle are laughing at me because I, I did this all the time in the eight years I pastored in Seattle. <clears throat> Why not just turn to the person next to you and say, I need prayer? They might be a total stranger. Isn't that where the, this is the church though. This is the hospital where God makes things right, where people are healed. If you need prayer, if you need to move forward, this is a time to receive that. I want to close with a quote as the worship team comes up and we conclude. This is from Fleming Rutledge's book, Advent. She says, Christmas is the right time to root out the cover-ups in our own lives as we wait with bated breath for the lights to come on and the announcement of the angel that God is not against us, but is for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, coming up on divine crossroads is a fact of life. Lord, there's been many times before the story that I referenced, there's been many times since where I've been at those places. I did not know how to move forward as empowered by you. I did not know how to move forward in selflessness, that life of Jesus coursing through my veins. I only knew selfishness and I only knew my own way. But Lord, you were so faithful to steer me. You were so faithful to empower me. You were so faithful to provide dear friends to encourage me. Your word to show my path. And Jesus, I want to pray for us as a congregation as we move into this Christmas season where often little is spoken of the brokenness of this world. We just focus on the Mary and the gifts and all the accoutrements, but not on how the joy came. Oh, Lord Jesus, may you move us forward in that selfless life that produces that incredible joy. We long for that, that reorienting upside down life that you make in the heart and in the mind of every believer. So Lord, as we conclude singing joy to the world, may we remember where this joy comes from. It comes from your coming. It comes from your working. And it comes from your continued work in our lives and in the churches that you are leading. Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.